MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I am your host. Most of you know me as AG, but since I no longer work for the government, you can call me Allison Gill. In this seven-part series, we're discussing the book Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Last week, we ended the episode with a transition chapter called Know Your Role, which was important uh, because that's about you know, what does and doesn't constitute the job of a prosecutor or you know whatever job you have. And uh, like I said, it was a setup for the first chapter we'll be discussing today about the Trump administration's violence at Lafayette Square Park. I'll also be going over a chapter called Take the Facts as They Are, very important chapter. Uh, and there's one on the Durham investigation, which is interesting because news about the Durham investigation broke today, and we'll get to that when I get there. And finally, a very short chapter called Own It, Fix It, uh, which is pretty straightforward. All told, we'll be covering pages 160 through 194. This will be a short episode because the way the chapters are split up, next week is going to be uh, a little bit longer. Um, the final episode is going to be pretty... Well, it won't be the final episode, but the, the final uh, part of the book, because we will have um, an episode seven that will include Ellie Honig answering your questions, our patron questions about this book. So if you have any questions about it, there should be posts on our social media pages, Discord, um, in the Facebook group, etc., on Patreon that uh, – are asking you to to click a link to fill out a form to you know ask Ellie anything and we'll have him on the final uh, epilogue episode of this seven part series. So with that, uh, I want you to have a little context for this episode in case you're listening to this in the distant future, the year two thousand. Uh, news dropped this week that the uh, Department of Justice Inspector General is investigating Trump and former Department of Justice officials for a possible plot to overthrow the government. Former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen, who took over after Bill Barr resigned, who was, you know, who we're discussing in this book, Bill Barr. But after Bill Barr left, uh, Rosen took over and he was given permission to testify to the inspector general and congressional committees by the DOJ, who said that they would not invoke their waiving executive privilege for him and Donahue and quite a few other people involved in, in this plot. Uh, given the exigent circumstances surrounding the actions of the former president, and one Jeffrey Clark, a Trump ally who worked at the Department of Justice. According to sources familiar with the Inspector General investigation, Rosen told the IG investigators that Clark and Trump conspired to force the Department of Justice to lie about election corruption, to say there was fraud when there wasn't, when they knew there wasn't. And Clark had drafted a letter he wanted Rosen to sign that said the Department of Justice was investigating election irregularities. 
As we know from the Times reporting earlier in the year, multiple DOJ officials refused to sign off on Clark being installed as acting attorney general and threatened to resign en masse. Uh, but Rosen and other department officials testified before the Senate Judiciary. Uh, Rosen testified to inspector general investigators, and according to sources, the Department of Justice has been working with Rosen for most of the year to get his testimony before Trump could sue to block it, and while it was still fresh in his mind. Many people who listened to Mueller, she wrote, and read the Mueller report, uh, fresh in the mind will uh, ring a bell, because that's why, you know, when we already knew that Mueller wasn't going to indict Trump because he, you know, the Office of Legal Counsel memo saying you can't indict a sitting president, people said, well, then why bother investigating? And the answer was to get the evidence out while it was fresh in people's minds. And and then we, you know, now we've got four at least really nice, tidy obstruction of justice of charges, which no one's done anything with yet, uh, which is kind of disappointing. Uh, but anyway, back to today. Something else that happened uh, is that B.J. Pack, he, he was a, a U.S. attorney in Atlanta, right, Northern District of Georgia, and he resigned on January 4th. And apparently he resigned under pressure from Donahue, who called him or emailed him and uh, wanted him, you know, wanted him to resign because he was being pressured by uh, the Department of Justice or he, he, he was told by the Department of Justice that if he didn't say there was fraud in the Georgia election, that Trump would probably fire him. So it might be best to resign. Uh, and so he did. And then they, <laughs> Donahue thanked him in an email. Thanks. your class act. Thanks for resigning, which is weird. He ended up uh, testifying as well, and people familiar with that testimony said, yeah, it was most definitely that the Trump, you know, he had heard the call with Raffensperger. Trump was trying to get him to say there was, uh, you know, wrong shit that went down in, in the Georgia election, and there wasn't, and he wouldn't say it, so he just resigned. And this guy, Christine, I think his name was, that took over, which was uh, like a, a more pliable Trump guy, was supposed to get in there and say, yes, I see all sorts of fraud. But when he got there and looked at the evidence, there wasn't any, so he didn't. <laughs> so even the yesiest yes man, the only guy who was willing to go along with what Trump was doing so far that we know in the Justice Department was Jeffrey Clark. And he needs to be, as Glenn Kirshner says, on the top 10 list of America's biggest traitors. So for all those calling for an investigation into Trump, we have one. If, if albeit an inspector general investigation, uh, if criminal activity is found, referrals can be made to federal prosecutors to pursue charges against the conspirators. Investigations usually go through the IG, but that move also provides political insulation from Merrick Garland. Uh, I have said repeatedly that uh, getting criminal referrals from Congress or the inspector general would lessen the appearance of political motivations for investigating the former guy or any of his allies within the department that were part of it, any conspiracy. We don't know yet if criminal charges will be pursued, as we are and have been in the beginning phases of, of the investigation. With that in mind, and coming off the heels of the chapter, the, the transitional chapter we covered at the end of the last episode called Know Your Role, and after discussing the Department of Justice's absolute duty to investigate the entirety of corruption within the DOJ, let's get started with the chapter on Lafayette Square Park. And I just want to let you know I'm in a hotel room, so if it's a little echoey, more echoey than normal, that is why. And I apologize if it's bothering you. Uh, let's, let's start here. We're on page, if you're following along, 161. Ellie begins by telling us that if you spend any amount of time in an attorney general's office, you'll hear the top cop referred to as general. General Barr or General Holder, for example. 
But the title attorney general doesn't have anything to do with the general title of the military or the armed forces. The title actually dates back to the 14th century. Ellie tells us that the word generally modifies the word attorney, as in this attorney has the general authority to act for the state or legal matters. Nevertheless, Ellie says, one night in June, as people were protesting the murder of George Floyd, Barr decided to act like a battlefield general and not an attorney general. He stepped outside the White House and ordered federal agents to clear the streets around Lafayette Square Park. Barr acted outside of his role when he did this. And it wasn't for anything other than to serve Trump's purpose and maybe play military. He's got, he's got this thing about military history. He's really into it. Officers used smoke canisters, pepper balls, riot gear, all to forcibly clear peaceful protesters. And then moments later, Trump strolled out of the White House, walked across the street to St. John's Church for a photo op to hold up a Bible upside down. And I really encourage y'all to read this chapter. Ellie really describes the scene in great detail, and it's a really good piece of writing. Afterwards, Barr defended the move, saying, it was just, uh, I was just extending the perimeter around the park. We were doing that as totally separate from Trump walking out and going to the church. Those two things were mutual. They had nothing to do with each other. Bada-bing. He insisted the two events were, events were not connected and said he had no idea about the Trump photo op thing. And more brilliant writing here by Ellie. He says, oh, hey, Mr. President, what's that? You're heading over to the church to hold up a Bible for the cameras. Well, what do you know? I just cleared that area. I'll take a stroll along with you. <laughs> like, that's what happened, right? Barr also claimed in an interview that tear gas wasn't used, splitting hairs by saying technically pepper spray isn't a chemical, man-made, and, you know, no gas was used or whatever. Just dumb, just dumb. Pepper spray isn't man-made. He says, Ellie points out that neither is strychnine or arsenic. <laughs> Regardless, what the park police used was actually man-made. So Barr was wrong. Not that the distinction makes a difference. They used tear gas against peaceful protesters. Then on page 165, Ellie interjects with some observations about prosecutors, saying that they love what's called the takedown, right? Takedowns are when an agent or agents scoop up a large number of defendants in a case all at the same time. It's a takedown. The FBI then develops an ops plan, which is pretty cool. It's got the timing of the arrest, the description of the target locations, tactical plans for entry, notes about contingencies, what-ifs. Um, the prosecutors usually get a copy of the ops plan a few days ahead of the takedown. And even though there's a temptation to add your two cents, because reading through it's pretty cool. Ali says this is a pretty cool document. But he reminds us it's important to know your role. You know, you're, Ellie's reading through that. He's the prosecutor. He's not the cops. He's not the tactical guy. As much as you want to be like, well, could you do this? You could do this. You don't. That's not your role. And it's important to know your role. Not only was Barr out of his lane, this is a quote, not only was Barr out of his lane when he played military make-believe outside the White House that Monday, but he did it for a baldly political purpose. And as, as protests continued against police violence and around the murder of George Floyd, they became a political flashpoint. Trump began tweeting about the protesters, saying they were Antifa and the radical left, anarchists. Uh, he blamed Democratic mayors for the unrest and used the term law and order as a campaign slogan. And you do the Democratic mayors, the Democrat cities. Like, that's where protests take place. We don't go to rural Illinois to march. That totally defeats the purpose. And most cities, you know, where all the people are, there, there's a lot of Democrats. Anyway, using that, you know, piggyback, oh, that's Democrat problem, anarchists, far left, Antifa, blah, blah, blah. 
And even though Barr had pushed back on Trump behind closed doors about that rhetoric, he publicly played along. In one instance, the same day Trump tweeted about Antifa and the radical left, Barr issued a statement saying, Groups of outside radicals and agitators, radicals and agitators, are exploiting the situation to pursue their own separate violent agenda. It appears the violence is planned, organized, and driven by anarchistic and far-left extremists using Antifa-like tactics, many of whom travel from out of state to promote violence. But on the contrary, we've actually learned that the violence was perpetrated by right-wing extremists, including now-indicted member of the Boogaloo Boys, a guy who fired an AK-47 into the Minneapolis Police Department precinct building. That wasn't a left-wing anarchist Antifa. In fact, Clint Watts, an FBI agent who specializes in extremist groups, says the numbers are overwhelming. Most of the violence is coming from the extreme right wing. And at that point, Trump tried to declare Antifa a terrorist organization, despite there being no legal mechanism to do that. And despite Antifa not being a thing, (laughs) Barr took it a step further by urging U.S. attorneys to charge protesters with sedition. But that was stupid, and it didn't work. So they decided to declare war on certain cities and call them anarchist jurisdictions, including Portland, New York, and Seattle. But the threat by Trump to pull federal funding for anarchistic jurisdictions never materialized. So it was all just performative bullshit. Though we now have reporting that they were considering invoking the Insurrection Act against totally fake sedition by a group that doesn't exist in a plot to keep power. Uh, That brings us to page 170, where Ellie talks about how, as a prosecutor, he's seen a lot of really sick and sadistic, fucked up things. But he actually gasped when he read the complaint against the militant group that plotted to kidnap and execute Gretchen Whitmer. That's Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And as we now know from public reporting, Ellie describes some of the details, the fact that they built and detonated an explosive device, they held field training exercises, they surveilled Whitmer's home, and her, I think her summer home, planned to bomb a bridge leading to the house and then snatch and grab her to take her to a remote location for trial. Another defendant suggested, just why don't we just knock on the door and shoot her when she answers? And despite the obvious rise of right-wing extremist groups, Barr didn't even recognize, let alone condemn it. He would call out left-wing Antifa by name, which isn't a thing, but would never call out right-wing extremists or like the ones that plotted to murder Governor Whitmer. Not only did he not comment, he wasn't at the press conference. He wasn't at the public announcement of the case. He didn't even include a quote in the press release, which usually happens if you can't be there for whatever reason. Not sure how you could be too busy. And since the book, we've learned that the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland actually moved to dismiss a Black Lives Matter lawsuit over Lafayette Square Park. That's been a point of contention. On to page 173 with a chapter called Take the Facts as They Are. Very important chapter. Transitional chapter in which Ellie uh, tells us an anecdote about a murder case involving a Gambino crime family member. Uh, You need to read the story to fully appreciate the gravity of this lesson, which is facts matter, even if they don't pan out the way you want. Basically, the Southern District flipped a driver in a murder they believed was ordered by Gotti. But according to the witness, Gotti only wanted the guy beat up. And he had no idea the enforcer would shoot the guy. Everyone was surprised the enforcer shot the guy. So based on the facts, they couldn't go after Gotti for attempted murder because Gotti didn't want the guy dead. He just wanted him beat up. And Ellie says, sometimes as a prosecutor, you have to take the world as you find it. And sometimes that means things don't turn out the way you hoped or expected. 
I had a conversation with Glenn Kirshner this week on the Daily Beans about this exact thing with the insurrectionists. People want them to go after the funders. But if the funders funded any bus, group bus thing to the Capitol, they would have had to known, have known that Trump was going to incite and instigate an attack on the Capitol. And many of them will probably have the defense of, we were just, we were funding a rally. We weren't funding an insurrection. We wouldn't have funded an insurrection. It'd be really hard to prove that kind of thing. And that's why Ellie says you have to take the world as you find it. Sometimes it means things don't turn out the way you hoped or expected. And he says, Barr didn't, didn't do that, though, which was why after three separate investigations into the oranges, the origins of the Trump-Russia probe, Barr appointed John Durham to give it a fourth look, which brings us to the chapter on the Durham investigation, which begins on page 177, Investigate the Investigators. Durham's in the news because he's expected to come out with a report in a few months, and uh, sources close to the investigation say he's talking to people outside the FBI who gave tips to the FBI and might have known that the tips they were giving to the FBI weren't fully vetted. To me, that sounds like Christopher Steele type stuff, right? Like he put together the dossier and it's a dossier of raw intelligence. It's not corroborated. Investigating, the FBI investigating is what corroborates that shit. So it's just, it's weird that <laughs> that, that could be a problem. Uh, but anyway, so Durham's in the news. I don't understand. And Ellie g goes over this in the book, too, why he's even there. He was appointed improperly. Anyway, we all sort of laughed here at Militia wrote when we heard that Barr was appointing a mafia prosecutor, a longtime mafia prosecutor, to look into the oranges of the Trump-Russia investigation, which is still going on, as we said. Like I, I, And it's interesting because when I scripted this particular part of the book, I said, we haven't heard a peep, but we did hear a peep today, but didn't didn't say much. But we joked mercilessly how hilarious it would be if Durham looked into the Russia probe and found wrongdoing by the president and the attorney general. <laughs> but, but I digress. Ellie opens this chapter by reminding us that Barr isn't an idiot. He's a dick, but he's not dumb. He's an undergrad and master's from Columbia, GW Law School, he's graduated with highest honors, clerked for a federal appellate court judge, worked for two massive law firms. But... When Senator Kamala Harris questioned him, he turned into a blubbering idiot. <laughs> a couple weeks before Barr testified to Congress, Trump had tweeted, remember, the Mueller probe uh, and Barr, no collusion, cop, dirty cops, investigate the investigators. And this led to the now famous exchange where Harris asked Barr if the president or anyone at the White House ever asked or suggested that you open an investigation of anyone. And Barr sat there for a minute in silence. And then, um... I wouldn't, um, and Harris says, yes or no? This is a yes or no question. And then Barr sat there again for a few seconds. And then he asked her to repeat the question. She repeated the question. Have you been asked or uh, suggested that you open an investigation of anyone? And Barr again, um, the president or anybody else, he asked. Harris said, it seems you remember something like this and you'd be able to tell us. And that's when Barr started playing really dumb. Yeah, but I'm trying to grapple with the word suggest. I mean, there have been discussions of of uh, matters out there. Uh, they've not asked me to open investigations, but and Harris goes, suggested? I wouldn't say suggest. Hinted? Inferred? You don't know? And he just said no. 
And Ellie notes what all of us were thinking. Barr totally was asked to investigate something or someone. And we know now from public reporting that he was asked to investigate a dumb staffer in the House Intelligence Committee, along with reporters from CNN and the Times. And even Don McGahn got swept up in that investigation. DOJ IG is looking into it right now. And again, just so you know, Inspector General investigations take like a year. So it's going to be there for a, for a minute. Justice is slow. And Ellie then goes over the multiple other investigations into the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation, including DOJ Inspector General's 476-page report that concluded the Russia investigation was properly predicated. I was frankly surprised Trump didn't fire Horowitz on the spot, but he had also found issues with the Carter-Page FISA, 17 errors in the Carter-Page FISA, which Trump glommed onto and ran with like it was the end of the world. So he can't really fire that guy that gave him his only useful piece of information, and it wasn't even relevant, in my opinion, because Carter-Page was never charged, nor did Carter-Page work for the campaign when that FISA was issued, and Rod Rosenstein signed off on those renewals. So, <sighs> chill. Anyway, back during this whole thing, it, the Republicans had control of the Senate. And Ellie wants to remind us here that in addition to that 476-page IG report, the Republican-led Senate Intelligence Committee concluded Trump had extensive contacts with Russian nationals and there was ample basis to investigate it. And the courts have also determined the Mueller probe was appropriately predicated. They've denied multiple motions to dismiss cases that arose from the investigation. I specifically am thinking of Manafort's. Multiple. You must dismiss because Mueller was improperly appointed. The whole investigation is a sham. No, no, it's not. It was predicated fine and well. And, you know, we've talked to Andy McCabe at length on this. He wrote about it in his book, The Threat, which we've done in a previous um, series on the MSW Book Club. But... Despite all that, despite all of that, Barr tapped John Durham to take a fourth look into the oranges. And now that Durham found nothing prior to the election, except for that Kleinsmith thing, right, and, and has been silent since, it seems to go along with the pattern of Trump wanting people to merely announce an investigation and let him do the rest. He did it with Zelensky. You don't have to do an investigation. Just announce you're investigating Biden. Then he did it with the acting Attorney General Rosen about the election. You don't, you don't need to, you know, just say there was corruption and me and my Republican friends in Congress will take care of the rest. Just appoint Durham to look into the oranges of the investigation, to just give it a, the appearance. It's being investigated, so something must be wrong. So he's got a pattern with this. Barr even did it, traipsing all over Italy. And we'll get into that in a second, but Barr told the Senate that he believed there was spying on the Trump campaign. He used the word spy, but he offered no evidence because there was none. It's called surveillance. And it, it, so you, spying, he used that deliberately, right? Implying it was improper when it was not. And then Barr even traveled to Italy with Durham to ask Italian officials to assist in the investigation. Let's get it. And, and, and another request for an announcement of an investigation from the Brits, right? Help us out. Say you're helping us with this investigation into the corrupt investigation of Trump Russia. Even when his own in inspector general came out with his report on the Russia probe, this is Horowitz, right? Barr stabbed him in the back by objecting to the findings. And he mischaracterized him the same way he, he shit on the Mueller findings. He said the inspector general's report now makes clear that the FBI launched an intrusive investigation of a U.S. presidential campaign on the thinnest of suspicions that, in my view, insufficient to justify the steps taken. Did you see the volume one of the Mueller report? He's so full of shit. Barr provided zero evidence upon which he drew that conclusion. By the way, he just drew it. 
Then Barr went to the Wall Street Journal, continued his rhetoric, said the Russia investigation was entirely made up. And Ellie points out that Barr made those statements before Durham had made any official findings on the matter, once again bucking Department of Justice policy about talking about open and ongoing investigations. But, you know, Trump wants you to talk about them, right? Just announce that there's an investigation. That's why he did that. And we then get to the Department of Justice policy of not announcing the opening of investigations within 60 days of an election, even though that was the rationale for firing Comey. And within 90 days, but outside the 60-day window, Durham announced the indictment of Kleinsmith. That's who the guy I was telling you about a minute ago, an FBI lawyer who altered an email about the description and disposition of Carter Page as an informant, as a source. And he's a known Russian asset who was, by the way, never charged. So I guess, I guess Durham didn't find nothing, but I mean, come on. <laughs> That's all they got. Carter Page FISA problems and a, and a reworded email. I guess you don't, you know, if you're thinking about it from the other side, if it were, if it were a good guy, right, you wouldn't actually have to charge him for that to be bad. And it is bad. Don't do that. Don't change emails. He, he did plead guilty. Now we're on to page 187. We come to Ellie discussing, by all public indications, Barr seemed to be getting ready to drop a bigger pre-election bomb despite the rules. He seemed to indicate he was going to announce a Durham finding, but then nothing happened. Again, another announcement, right? First, one of the Durham's top deputies resigned, Nora Danahy. That was September 2020. She seemingly resigned because Barr had pressured Durham to announce some sort of bullshit before Election Day. Public reporting insinuated that Nora pulled out because they all might resign because of Barr's pressure to say something before the election. So Durham basically told Barr that they weren't going to do or say anything. Despite all that, Barr designated the investigation a special counsel probe in October of 2020 and placed Durham in the spot, despite DOJ policy saying you can't appoint a special counsel that already works for the government. (laughs) That's in the rules. Now that prompted an obvious question. Why so late in the game? Why designate Durham a special counsel after he'd already been investigating for nearly a year and a half? Why not make him special counsel from the start? Well, he wanted to announce something in October. Oh, it's just the appearance, right? And I think they wanted to keep him after Trump lost. So finally, we get to a small chapter called Own It, Fix It, right? And this is pretty basic. This is a a great story. I just, I want you to read the story because it's like Bada Bing from The Sopranos, but it's real life. And Ellie tells it wonderfully. But the, the point here is that Uh, One of his trial partners made an error in a trial and then was asked about it when Sotomayor was on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals because they were filing for an appeal uh, because of this error, or at least partly because of this error. And when Sotomayor, you know, asked, you know, you know, why why did you do that? Or how did that question come up? Uh, he, Ellie said, Your Honor, that was my trial partner, but I take 100% responsibility for everything that both of us did throughout the trial, and it was wrong. The end, right? Sotomayor seemed satisfied, though she was still pretty displeased. But the Second Circuit eventually upheld the trial convictions because, they, you know, they had plenty of other proper evidence to sustain the guilty verdicts. But, you know, you have to own your mistakes, and that's what Ellie says here. He says, we all mess up sometimes. We all get things wrong. We all misstate things. We all do things in the heat of the battle that we later regret. 
When a prosecutor does that, it's a very big deal, given the stakes, most important, another person's liberty. So when you do mess up, you need to own up, and if possible, fix it. And he says that's another lesson that Bill Barr never learned. Or or perhaps he once knew it and, and forgot. <laughs> but that deficiency, Ellie says, led him to publicly embarrass himself in the Justice Department on an issue at the heart of our democracy, which is voting. And that takes us, will take us next week to page 195. And it's going to be a little bit of a longer episode. We're going to go over the 2020 election is where we're going to start. And then after that, flipping through here, after that is Culture Warrior, which is a really great chapter about sort of the philosophy behind Bill Barr and why he does what he does. Then The Road Back, it will be um, that chapter, which is a kind of a nice what we need to do going forward. And we can kind of see how we're doing because it's been a minute, right? And then Humility. That's what we're going to do next week, page 195 to uh, 255 pretty long, but it's good stuff. And then, of course, the final episode. Ellie will join me and we'll take your questions. There's a form floating around out there for patrons. It should be on our Patreon page where you can click and ask the questions, any questions you have about this book or anything he's written or anything, you know, since that, um, you know, that we've learned that is relevant to to the book. But uh, anyway, we'll see you next time for Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department by Ellie Honig. Uh, episode six is next week. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been Allison Gill, and this is the Muller She Wrote Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.